everybody doing this morning? Any uh, March Madness fans? Anybody make a bracket? Is anybody's bracket holding up at this point? Anybody close? Like a good percentage going to the Sweet 16? Okay. That's usually the response. Uh, Every once in a while, uh, you get lucky like Ben, uh, and you pick a team that shouldn't win uh, to keep winning over and over again, uh, and it makes you look really good. Uh, So as a church, we did uh, a a bracket, and uh, Ben, for some reason, chose Wisconsin uh, to do really well. Uh, And so he is, uh, I think yesterday when we were looking at it, he was somewhere in like the 100th percentile uh, for success, so that was pretty good. It was also Ben's birthday yesterday, so if you could uh, tell him happy birthday today, he'll really love that. And if you give him a birthday hug, he would love that even more. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, So this uh, past week, I was going to say weekend, but really Thursday, uh, Friday, and Saturday, Uh, A few of us from the church went up to Atlanta uh, to a conference. Uh, It was called the Front Porch Conference, and uh, the idea or the main idea was the just gospel. Uh, It was so rich, um, I want to invite and extend an invitation uh, or even an encouragement uh, for you to take some time uh, and go watch some of the talks and some of the panel discussions uh, that that were there. Uh, They were paradigm-shifting. Uh, very humbling, uh, and I think we all walked away uh, tremendously encouraged, uh, wholly pointed to Christ. Uh, And just a couple of the topics uh, that they talked about were um, injustices in the church, a proper theology uh, of justice, uh, the role of the church in the social sphere, uh, how the gospel speaks into those places. They talked about injustices uh, against women uh, in the church that often go unnoticed and uh, injustices among uh, race. Um, uh, It it was just really valuable. I'd encourage you to check it out. Uh, You can uh, watch all the talks, I believe, are up for free. uh, And it's at thefrontporch.org slash talks. Uh, And if you uh, go to our Twitter, we've posted the link on uh, our social media uh, so you can go and check that out there. But I'd, I'd encourage you to just take some time and do that. And uh, It's a good opportunity. Uh, oftentimes when we talk about, uh, we think about, oh, we want to share our faith. We want to be the one who, who's teaching, who's talking, who's doing all these things. And uh, really, I think the gospel calls us to listen. Uh, and this is a really good opportunity uh, to be able to, to listen uh, and be encouraged. So... Um, you know, we're right in the middle of, of Lent. Uh, today we're, we're going to go into Matthew, the end of 22 and into Matthew, or finish Matthew 23. Uh, and we're in the season of Lent. Uh, but I have a question for you. Can anybody remember the first time you had really good chocolate? Kind of a weird question. Nods, reactions, interactions, yes, no. Okay, all right. Uh, I know it's a kind of an ambiguous thing because, like, Kit Kats are good and Snickers are good. Uh, and, and that sort of thing, but that isn't actually good chocolate. It might be like good candy, but it's not actually like good chocolate. If you've had good chocolate, uh, you know uh, what quality chocolate is like. Um, when I was doing youth ministry in Lincolnton, uh, this is, I guess, characterizes like all people, but especially like teenagers who have very little money. They want to get the most bang for their buck, which is why they love like the dollar menu, and they love cookout, and they just they want to get as much as they can for 
as, as less as they can uh, give. And the kids would always, we would do youth days and things like that, and they'd always, oh, can we run up to Dollar General? Can we run up to Dollar General? And they would always buy these enormous bags of chocolate. You know what I'm talking about, big bags of chocolate. And I don't mean, they weren't like the Hershey's Dark and like the Crackle and the, you know, Good Bar. It was like the foil-wrapped circles. You know, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, the stuff that you used to get for Halloween. Now people give the good stuff at Halloween, but it's like what you used to get for Halloween when you go trick-or-treating. And so they go in and they come out, and I'm like, how did you get that much chocolate for like $1.50? I mean, a huge bag. And they would come out, uh, and they're, you know, unwrapping it, and they're eating it, going to town, and, you know, they would, uh, hey, you want some? And I remember tasting it, and I was like, this is not chocolate. This is like a Tootsie Roll with, like, wax in the middle. I mean, it was really genuinely bad. I mean, if you've had that kind of chocolate, you know. Um, I, I, just, I just remember, and they thought it was the best thing ever. They were like, man, we can get so much chocolate. I was like, you're getting candles, chocolate-scented <laughs> candles. I know after tasting the good stuff, I was really let down when I had uh, the, the stuff that really wasn't all that good. And right in the middle of the season of Lent, if you know... Uh, much about Lent, uh, you know that throughout the season of Lent, it's tradition that you give something up, right? You set something aside, uh, and, and typically it's something uh, that you indulge in or something that's necessary, and you kind of like painfully set it aside and sacrifice it. You fast from it. And lots of times we see this as a pretty big inconvenience, and we kind of see it as a spiritual discipline, uh, and it's this tough thing that we endure to get through. But I want to encourage you and suggest that I don't think that we're actually viewing it through the proper lens. Lent isn't just a time that we set something to the side. It's, some, it's, a, it's also a time that we take something up. It's a time uh, that we take up, namely Christ, in the place of the things that we're setting aside. And, you know, I mean, chocolate is chocolate. And if nothing else is available, we'll eat the flavored candles. Uh, but Lent is a time where we call ourselves back to what's truly better. We call ourselves back to what's truly better. It's a time that we set aside the waxy chocolate, the things that we've settled for, and it's a time that we indulge ourselves in Christ. And in Christ, when we indulge ourselves in his word, when we indulge ourselves in intimacy and prayer with him, communion with him, we find that he really is better than even the things we need to survive. Because there's a deeper part of us that we, we really need to feed. And, and that we, you know, it's a time, Lent is that time, uh, at least for me it's been a time to really take in Christ and really, really taste and see that he, he's really better. So I just wanted to encourage uh, all of you, if you've given up something for Lent, to really take up, uh, take up Christ. Don't just give something up, but really take in Christ. One of the main veins that we're going to see going through chapter 23 um, is that the religious leaders continue to go after the waxy chocolate. They continue to go after what is lesser and what is not good and what is not rich. They continue to be satisfied with imitation chocolate. They go after their own glory rather than taking in uh, the glory of God and being satisfied in and through the glory of God. So, uh, as we go into uh, reading chapter 23 together, I, one, it's a bit of a long chapter, um, so 
just kind of know that going into it. Uh, I really, as we go to pray, I know that pray can, uh, praying can sometimes be um, something that we just do, something that we just get through, and kind of this time is just a time for you know, me to say a prayer, and we kind of like christen the idea of you know, preaching and reading the Word. But I really want to encourage you, I want to invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to really reveal to you His goodness, His faithfulness, and your brokenness and your need of His goodness and faithfulness as we read chapter 23. To me personally, it's been one of the most powerful, powerful things I've read in the past few months. Uh, while preparing, uh, reading through chapter 23, I just began to weep. And not like a teardrop, but just like weep. I was just absolutely destroyed by how similar my heart and how easy my heart becomes like that of the Pharisees. And when you read this chapter, you're going to see uh, how Jesus is dealing with those Pharisees. But also, in it, by the end, I was so encouraged by his kindness and his persistence and his faithfulness and his commitment to us to where I was just totally overwhelmed. Uh, so with that, I want to encourage you uh, to just pray with me uh, as, as, as I pray and ask the Spirit to just do a work, uh, to do a work in your heart and in your life. Um, Especially if you're in a season or it's been a time where things have been a little bit dry for you and there's not a whole lot of like, intimacy with Christ or whole, not a whole lot of fellowship happening and not a lot of joy taking place in your life, uh, to really just ask him to reveal uh, some stuff to you. And, uh, and, and that's good news because we're going to see as things come to the light, we find uh, healing and our lives actually begin to look like and take shape uh, from and after Christ. So if you guys will, if you'll join me. I am praying. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you've not left us to our own emotions and our own ideas and our own thinking and our own con contriving and conceiving and um, creating. I thank you that you are the creator, that you are the instructor, that you are the great teacher. Uh, and we just ask, I ask on behalf of myself that even as I'm preaching, uh, that what comes uh, from me would just be what's in your word um, and that what uh, you would do in us is to stir up uh, hearts of repentance and uh, that you would move us into uh, lives of righteousness, that you would just transform us uh, and Lord that you would ultimately use us uh, for your glory and that we would learn that in your glory we can be truly and most satisfied. So Spirit, cut deep and just bring about a healing in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their flactories broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called a rabbi by others. But you, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers 
And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you shut out the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anybody swears by the gold on the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of righteousness, saying that if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding, in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogue and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, 
You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I told you guys that was a long chapter. There's four things that I want us to take away from the chapter. Four things that I want us to explore and I want us to look at more in depth. Four points. The first is actually a question. The first question I have is how could the Pharisees miss him? How could they miss him? And we'll unpack that a little bit in a minute. The second, I want to know what's the underlining problem. I think Jesus exposes the underlying problem of why they continue to miss him. Third, I want us to see that this isn't a problem that's just for them, but it's actually a universal problem. It's a common problem that all of humanity shares. And fourth, I want us to see that there's good news here uh, and see what Jesus provides as a solution. Uh, But before uh, we get into the first point, I want to do a little bit of background because chapter 23, you know, when we read the Bible, when we go to the text, we, we can't just take it in isolated pieces. We want to understand what's going on in its context because context informs uh, what's happening. So chapter 23, in its context, is seen as actually the climax of chapter 21 and 22. This is the culmination. This is kind of when it, uh, there's this peak in whatever this dialogue is. So I just wanted to kind of go through, I guess for you guys it would be left to right. So go through uh, from chapter 21 uh, to 22 just real briefly, just to remind you of where we are in the text and where this fits in. So in chapter 21, we see at the beginning a triumphal entry, right? If you're familiar, if you've been with us, you know Jesus enters in on a donkey. The people are going crazy. Hosanna, Hosanna. Uh, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's coming in, and the crowds are going wild. And immediately, the first thing he does is he goes to the temple, temple and he gets right down to the business, uh, or right down to his business. He clears the temple for, of all who are aiming to use the temple for their own purposes. Part of what he does is he goes in and he's clearing the temple where there's injustices being done, where they're not uh, following what what was prescribed. And from from this point on, all the religious leaders, it didn't matter whether they were conservatives, whether they were liberals, whether they're Pharisees or whether they're Sadducees or the Herodians or the scribes, they all are going to turn against Jesus. They're going to come together against this common enemy and they're going to work together to try to entrap him. And because they don't really have the power to do anything in and of themselves, they're going to try to do everything they can to like, employ Rome to be the actual uh, people who will kill or get rid of Jesus. So they, you move into challenging. So he has a triumphal em- entry. He goes and he clears the temple. And then they begin to unite against him and they begin to challenge him. And the first thing, they come together and they challenge his authority. And they essentially say, hey, where is your authority from? Uh, and he, he responds... Uh, And then they try to trap him with the question, if you remember, about taxes, about Caesar. They try to get him involved and trap him into some political question. uh, And he blows that out of the water uh, as well. Then the Sadducees are like, all right, we're kind of done with trying to come together and get him. Let's try to get him specifically, you know, kind of from our angle. And so uh, they didn't take the law, the full uh, law necessarily. And so they didn't really believe in the resurrection. And so they try to trap Jesus about a question about the resurrection, and Jesus exposes them, uh, and, and I love it. He says that you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And then hearing that the Sadducees has failed, the Pharisees say, okay, now, you know, they've tried from their angle. We're kind of conservative law-abiding folks, so we're going to try from our angle. And they go, and they ask him, out of all the laws, what's the greatest? It's supposed to be a trick question. 
And we know Jesus responds uh, that essentially all the law and all the prophets hang on this one command. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He says that this is the first and greatest. And then he goes on, the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And here is where we transition. All up into this point, if you go through Matthew, the Pharisees are the ones who are kind of initiating a questioning. They're the ones who are kind of coming against, and they're the ones who continue to challenge Jesus. But I really like here at the end of 22, and we're about to read it, and uh, I really like there's a transitional piece that takes place here. Because Jesus goes from being the one who's responding to the question to be the one who poses the question. And it really is a total mic drop. Because at the end of this, it's going to say that after Jesus asked this question, he stumps everybody in the room, and from this point forward, no one dares to ask him another question. This is his first question, outright. Take a look at, uh, in chapter 22, so if you go back just a little bit, verses 41 to 46. It says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they say to him, the son of David. Jesus said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And it goes on, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. After being bombarded over and over throughout Jesus' ministry uh, and being challenged and, 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 you know, kind of back to this original question that I pose is, you know, how, how, I want to know, like, how is it that the people who are supposed to be looking for Jesus continue to miss him? I mean, as a reader, as somebody who's looking through the text and even considering, hey, what was going on in the minds of the Jewish people, which is the audience Matthew writes to, they've got to be asking this question as well. Right? I mean, they're asking, how could our religious leaders who are supposed to be telling us when the Messiah is coming, how could they continue to miss him over and over? It's a major question about Jesus' legitimacy. Shouldn't the religious leaders know? Aren't there, I mean, their primary job is to be on the lookout and to teach the law. And Jesus just rightly said, and they even agreed with him, that all of the law and the prophets are summed up in this one command. And we know, because Jesus teaches in the end of, we see in the end of Luke, that all of the scriptures pointed to Jesus. How, if he is who he says he was, how did they keep missing him? If we're not asking that question, are we looking at it, I mean, looking at it objectively and really saying, how are they keep, how do they keep missing him? And I think with this question, the question that Jesus asks, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? This isn't Old Testament trivia night. Jesus is exposing how very little they actually know about the Christ. And not only how very little they know about him, but how little their hearts actually desire his coming. So this is the answer to the first question. How could they miss him? I think the answer is simple. I don't think they were actually looking for him. So why? What's the underlining thing going into our second point, right? What's the underlining piece that's going on here? Why, why are they not looking for him? Jesus in chapter 23 reveals a real problem. 
because he reveals what really motivates all of their religious activity. I mean, you know, this group, the scribes and the Pharisees, are the most legalistic and the most religious group in Jerusalem. They care about the details of their theology. They put to death those who come against it. They aren't lackadaisical about their dedication. They're not weak on their piety. They read their scriptures. They sacrifice. They go to the temple. They fast. They feed the poor. They tithe. They do all of the religious things. But in chapter 23, Jesus exposes that the motive underlining all of their religious piety is based on a false god. I think they were unable to see the true God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, now being fully manifest and revealed in Jesus because they themselves were actually the object of their faith. I'll say it again. They were unable to see the true God being fully revealed in Jesus Christ because they themselves were the object of their faith. They declared and they said and they even did the religious things. They did all of these things, but Jesus exposes it and he says, they're obviously not. Look at their lives. Look at their hearts. They do everything to be seen by others. They do everything to maintain respect and get likes, to get the checkbox, to get the crowd's approval, right? Look at, look at uh, verse 5. He says they do all their deeds to be seen by others. He calls them greedy and self-indulgent. He said they love to make their religious achievements known. They're arrogant. They're pomp about their accomplishments and their worth and what they've earned. They love the place of honor at feasts. They love power. They love the best seats in the synagogue. And they love to be the most important. They love being greeted out in public and being called teacher and being respected and revered. And the problem with this is if this is what they live for, what happens when God calls them to something that calls them to set those things aside? Being respected is not bad. Teaching is not bad. Being a king is not inherently bad. God put David on the throne. These things are not inherently bad. But if they become our purpose, if they become their purpose and their motivation, for them, it actually becomes their God. I don't know. That section, like 5 to 7, is what really uh, did it to me. They do everything to be seen by others. They're greedy and self-indulgent. They want to make their religious achievement known. They love sitting at the place of honor. They love power. They love having the best seat. They love being called teacher or rabbi. They love being respected. I don't know. If like I look at my own life and you look at your own life, man, is that what like motivates a lot of what we do? Even in the church? Especially in the church? Back to the Pharisees. That's that's easier than talking about us. They aren't pointing people to the one true God. They're pointing to themselves. 
All of their stuff is pointing to themselves. They do all of these things pretending to point to God, and truly all that they're doing is to point to themselves. They aren't pointing people to God. They're not allies with God. They have taken the position of enemy. Because if you know the Old Testament, if you know the law, you know the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Anyone who sets themselves up as a God next to him is enemy. There shall be one God. He calls them blind fools who aren't pointing to him, but pointing to their system, which again points to themselves. It's what they're after. And I love to see the kindness and the patience and graciousness of God. Because after all of the woes, after all of the charges, I mean, these are actually like judgments being issued against the Pharisees. Just so you, I mean, these are a, this is a divine indictment. It is a warning of what is to come. And afterwards, he, he hasn't left them. As a matter of fact, he says that I, and I love this part, he, he doesn't just say like, and God has sent prophets. He says, I send you prophets. So just, if you can, in your brain, link that up with the son of David uh, piece when they're asking about who do you think the Christ, whose son is he? Which is a little bit of a, uh, I don't know, for the Pharisees, a probably a hot iron in the wound. Um, but he says that they, they haven't wanted the prophets. They want, haven't wanted to hear from God. They haven't wanted what God had for them. In verse 37, I think Jesus makes a simple summary. He laments, in, I mean, in lamenting his people and their, their rejection of him, he says, and, and I think this is the answer to the question, right? So the question, the first question was, how could they be missing him? It's simple, they weren't looking for him. The second question is, why? What's the underlying, underlying problem? I think it's also right here in 37 because they were unwilling. They were unwilling. They were unwilling to look for him because they were too busy trying to take his place. The underlying, underlying problem was they were not looking for him. They were unwilling to look for him because they were too busy trying to take his place. And if you know the narrative of Scripture, I, I hope this rings a bell in your mind to think about the fall. What happened in the fall? What's the lie that the serpent gave to Adam and Eve? You can be like God. He's holding out on you. He just doesn't want you to be like him. And they go after his glory, after his power. Pharisees, unwilling to look for him. They're too busy trying to take his place. And what did God promise Adam and Eve, kind of going back on this narrative? He promised them, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. And what's Jesus' indictment against these Pharisees? You are whitewashed tombs full of dead people's bones. And what did Adam and Eve do, if you know the narrative? What do they do in response to the death that they, that, that they welcome and they take? They hide. They realize they're naked. They're ashamed. And they go and hide. And what is Jesus, his, his indictment on the Pharisees? He calls them whitewashed tombs. They spend all of their time dealing with the external while the inside of them are actually dead. Do you see it? 
it's the same progression as the fall. It's the same temptation. You can be like God. You can take his place. You can have his glory. And the result, God is just. And the result is death. Sin brought about death. And rather than running, rather than running back and shamelessly exposing their sin and their brokenness, they spend all of their time building a protection, a covering for themselves that's completely and entirely insufficient to do the job. A common phrase that I think we use and we hear in our culture, and especially in the church, uh, and, and it's said usually like jokingly, but, but I think Jesus says, hey, all joking aside, I'm going to demolish this notion. And it's the idea of like fake it till you make it. Right? Like we carry this idea, it's like, hey, you know, like I don't love my brother, so I'm just going to like fake it till I make it. But is that, what does Jesus say that leads to? Death. This isn't what he's called us to. In verse 12, he gives an explicit command. He tells his disciples and the crowds who are going to come after him, he's laying out all of these things that they're doing. They're greedy, they're self-indulgent, they're after themselves, they've made themselves their own God, and now they're like talking and giving this religion to you as though it's actually pointing to me, but it's really pointing to themselves. So when you convert them and you share with them this religion, you're actually making them uh, a child of hell, it says. He says you're actually making disciples not of me. Not, you're not teaching about God in the way that they live. In verse 12, uh, or verses 8 to 12, he, he issues an explicit command to those who are going to follow him. And I think, uh, just as an aside, in, in a culture of grace where we preach the gospel, we can, this weekend there was this, this the talk that was done on uh, mercy and justice. And it was absolutely phenomenal. It was a panel. There was a couple people up there. And there was, a, you know, theologians are debating about, you know, what, you know, how do we, you know, understand God's justness and his mercifulness and so on and so forth. And there was a guy who's a, a superior court judge uh, or the chief justice for the superior Supreme Court for the state of Georgia was there. And in just the most simple terminology, he just answers this question. And too often, I think we are of, of what does this look like, God's justice and mercy. And I think we see these things as opposites, as paradoxes, as separate. And so we're like, hey, you know what? Like, it's cool, man. You've been saved by grace. So, like, don't worry about the righteousness of Christ. Like, he doesn't. That's not the case. He gives a command here. He's calling us to righteousness. He is at work in us, bringing about his righteousness in us. Verses 8 and 12, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers, and no man, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who's in heaven, and neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. What's he doing there? I mean, kind of looking at this whole big picture, they're trying to take the place of God. They're, you know, following after maybe their fathers and the traditions of their fathers. And by doing so, they've kind of missed following after the one true God. He's saying, you have one teacher. You are all brothers. Call no man your father. He's not saying don't call your dad, dad. 
He's talking about what is the supreme authority in your life? What is it that you follow? What is it that you credit for where you are and where you come from? Your origin. Then he goes on and he says that the greatest among you shall be your servant. Man, I think that we could read that verse. And if we really like took it to heart, I think it could be enough for a month's worth of sermons. I mean, just think to yourself, if you were to walk out of here in your family, in our church body, in your community, in your neighborhood, Jesus says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Work that out in your lives. I mean, really. Following Jesus isn't about moving up. Following Jesus isn't about getting status or position or wealth. It's not being, earning a position of respect and honor. But anything that you have been given, he is calling us as his followers to follow after him who considered equality with God nothing to be grasped but made himself as a servant. He's calling us to follow after him. I think it's, sometimes in my mind, I really wrestle with that. I want to be served. I want the world to be about me and to revolve about me. I want to be respected. I want to be called teacher. I want to be responsible for all the change and all the good things that happen. But when I get down to my heart, when I really uncover what's underneath the surface, I can tell you what's there every time. I want to be up here. I want to take his place. And I am not a good God. He is the one alone who should have that place. He is the one alone who should be trusted. The one who is trustworthy and who is good. You'll appreciate this. We're going to go into the third and the quickest of the points. Um, the point is that it's not, th- this whole issue isn't just, uh, and I kind of got into it, but it's not just a problem with these Jewish leaders here. It's a problem, Jesus says, with their fathers and their forefathers and their ancestors. And I want to say that I think it's a problem for us, too. I told you how it's a problem for me. I think we're, you know, we, we like the Pharisees and, and, and the scribes. Like, we know. Like, you know something is, just ain't right. I mean, it, Paul was talking the other week, and uh, he was leading a discussion in our missional community. And he said, think about how little you like to slow down and be quiet. Why? Because the silence eats us. Right? In the silence, we have to come to terms with what's under our surface. Right? We have to deal with our souls. I mean, who likes to put down their phone? I'm just asking. Who likes to cut off the TV? Not me. I don't want to have to deal with the stuff under the surface. I don't have to deal with that nagging feeling of what is life all about. Things are miserable, things are bad, right? Everything that's under the surface that we do, everything we can. I mean, think about all that you do. All that we do is to create some sort of covering for ourselves, some sort of exterior. We focus on the exterior of this bowl, and the inside has been sitting in our sink with black beans for three months. Do you know how, anybody else experience how terrible black beans smell? I'm like, how could something smell so bad after sitting for like one day 
But that, that's what we do. We ignore what's on the inside. We don't want to deal with it. And we do well in our jobs. We do well in our careers. We stay very productive and we do religious things and we serve even. And we may even go and we read our Bible and come to church. And we stay active. We stay going so that we don't have to deal with this thing under the surface that gnaws at us. If you've seen the movie Rocky, uh, you know um, when he's getting ready to fight Apollo, he has this dialogue with his trainer. And I'm going to just read what he says. He says, oh, come on, Adrian. It's true. I'm not going to do the voice. Um, you could in your head, though. Ah, uh, oh, come on, Adrian. It's true. I was nobody. But that doesn't matter any either. That doesn't matter either, you know. Because I was thinking it really don't matter if I lose this fight. It really don't matter if this guy opens my head either. Because all I want to do is go the distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go that distance, you see, and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life, see, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. Rocky's entire motive is to prove to himself that he's not worthless. And we, too, do everything we can to build an exterior. We paint the outside to just try to prove to ourselves, to convince ourselves that we have some worth and some value. And I'm, not mad, I mean, I'm not mad about that. I mean, it's, it's self-defense, right? Like, we eat, we're doing these things to try to, like, defend ourselves and protect ourselves. And a lot of times, these things, like, serve well to protect us. They're what we call defense mechanisms. But those def defense mechanisms, while they serve to guard us, they do nothing to heal us and give us life. They're insufficient, inadequate to give us our life. Just a thought, kind of moving into our final point, which is a solution, which we probably would really like to hear at this point, the good news. The question is, what do you cover yourself with? What do you put on your exterior? What are you unwilling to really like allow Christ to deal with? Because I'm telling you, he, he's the good chocolate. And when you allow him to deal with those places in us, when we, we find our life, that part of our life in him, we want him to have the rest of it. We talk about discipleship, increasingly submitting all of life to Christ. This isn't a pain. This is a good thing. Repentance. This is a good thing. Discipleship is a good thing. It's not putting away all the things that are really awesome and taking this boring thing. We're putting away death and taking on life. So the good news, uh, if you guys will flip back a couple chapters, we very rarely think of good news coming from the Old Testament, but I want you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. If you've got a Bible, I don't know exactly how many chapters back, I mean books it is, but if you just flip back like this much in your Bible from where you are in Matthew, you should be pretty close to Ezekiel. And if not, it'll be right up here on the screen. The fourth point is that there's a solution. It's so a little bit long. We're going to read verses 1 to 14. But enter in. He, hear the good news. See the parallel in these two verses, in these two chapters. And this is from the prophet Ezekiel. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many bones on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, 
can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. I mean, I think he was like, this is a trick question. Like, can they live? No. Uh, but, but, you know, he wants to be safe. So he says, oh, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover your skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied, Ezekiel says, as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, and the breath came into them, and they lived, stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it declares the Lord. Ezekiel's prophecy is fulfilled in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Ezekiel's prophecy is fulfilled in and through what Jesus is about to do in this narrative. He is about to call the dead to life. He is about to give out his spirit and give life to people who are dead. Jesus has come to transform our whitewashed tombs. Us, we, full of dead bones into a living hope. A dwelling place for the Most High. He has come to make his home in us. He has come so that death no longer has its way in us. He has come so that our outward appearance will accurately reflect an inward reality. Jesus is creating something in me. He is creating something in you that can stand. That's going to go, be, go beyond the distance. That's not short term. God's perspective and his investment is for the long haul. He's preparing us for the new heaven and the new earth. Where pain and sickness and death, all initiated by the fall, is done away with, and we are made new, just as, just as he intended us to be. And again, this is why Jesus says to his disciples at the beginning, 
that this outworking of this inner deadness, the, the outworking, this, this trying to get glory and trying to, to, to clothe ourselves with these things. He says, these, this is not to be of you. Why? Because this prophecy is true, and he is going to take them from death to life, meaning they're going to be alive on their insides, and he wants their outward things to reflect what's really happening in them. And just kind of as a conclusion piece to the Genesis narrative, Remember in Genesis, we were promised that the servant would be crushed, that death would be done away with. And God, as a foreshadowing, provides Adam and Eve with a better covering that they can make for themselves. And here, we are offered the better covering, the covering of Christ, which doesn't hide our brokenness, but actually heals our brokenness, transforming it from a, a dead and dying, festering wound to something that gives life. Hear what the prophet Isaiah wrote. He has clothed, clothed me with garments of salvation and covered me in his righteousness, in a robe of righteousness. So how does this practically work for us? Because like we know the truth and sometimes these things don't really like happen for us and we still walk around with like death going on and misery going on and, and, and all of these different things. Um, and we, we believe that the scripture teaches us that when, when there's a fruit, uh, the fruit always matches the root. And that when there's a fruit, like what we've talked about of the Pharisees today, there's probably underlining, underlying unbelief in our hearts about who God is and what he's done and who we are in him and because of him. So what do we do when this kind of comes to reality and somebody offends you and you're like, man, screw him. I don't want to serve him or her. I don't want to help them. I don't want to be generous. What, what do we do with our brokenness when it begins to surface and expose itself? This is the last time you'll have to turn. But go over to 1 John. That'll be almost at the end. But I think most people probably have a phone. So if you just click Bibles or books and just choose 1 John. That was supposed to be a joke. Let's look at verses 5 to 10 in chapter 1 of verse John. It says, John says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus, his son, that cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So how do we deal, like when it happens on, on a ground level, how do we deal with it when this stuff surfaces? When we realize that the fruit of our lives isn't lining up with the truth of the gospel, we don't hide it. We don't cover it up. We don't keep it a secret. We expose it, which is like the opposite of the gut reaction, right? When we do something wrong or shameful or we choose poorly, what do we want to do? What do you want to do? Do you want to go broadcast it? No. You want to turn and you want to hide and you want to cover up, but I'm telling you there is a better covering for you. And it's Christ and there's healing that happens as we expose it to one another in the community of faith. 
We confess our sins and we ask one another to speak truth to us and remind us the truths about who God is and what he's done. I guess that's the Lenten charge. I want to encourage you, and it's, it's very similar to, uh, we talked about masks a few weeks in our missional community, but the Lenten charge is to maybe ask the Spirit to reveal to you some areas that you're trying to keep hidden in your life and you don't really want to have to deal with but are really, like, eating you up and, like, confess them. Confess them to your community of faith, whether it's your family, whether it's your missional communities or your, your DNA groups, whatever it is. Find a place and, like, confess your sin and by doing so, do you hear what John says? By confessing our sins. See, we think we confess our sin, we're, oh, we're lying, we, you know, our lives aren't lying enough, and we're not telling the truth about who God is. But actually, as we confess our sin, we confess that we are broken and in need of a Savior. And the Savior is proclaimed. And the gospel message is demonstrated in word and in deed. I want to close... Uh, I don't know if you're familiar, if anybody in here is familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a historic confession of faith. Um, and essentially, there's just a bunch of questions with a bunch of answers that have scriptures associated with them. And uh, the first two questions uh, are, very, are very powerful. What is the truth that we want to be reminded of, that we want to be reminding one another? I love it. It's summed up right here in the first question, the first answer. The first question for the Heidelberg Catechism says, what is your only comfort and life and death? And it's addressing the Christian. So Christian, what is your only comfort and life and death? Answer. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's a good thing to read and to remember. What is our comfort in life and death? Is it our own glory? Is it the own coverings that we fashion for ourselves? I'm going to say that those are insufficient to bring you true healing and hope and true life. Remember the words of the gospel. Speak the words of the gospel over to one another. Confess your sins to one another. Because I, I, I'm convinced, and this is what it's looked like in my life so far, I'm convinced that once we taste the real thing, real death to life, transformation in one area of our life, there's no more substitutes that satisfy. We will no longer be satisfied with imitation chocolate. It'll taste waxy, terrible, and miserable. Christ is a real thing. So each week uh, at Redemption, we enter into a time of response. Uh, and our time of response consists of us coming and taking a communion, uh, and what we do is we come up through the middle aisle, and we tear off the bread, uh, which represents the body of Christ broken for us, and we dip it in the wine or juice that represent Christ's blood that was shed for us. And by coming up and by taking communion, we are proclaiming in our actions to one another that we really believe that he is our, 
our, our only comfort in life and death. We really, we were saying that we believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And it's an encouragement, it's a hope, it's a proclamation of the gospel to one another through our action. And if you're not a Christian and Christ isn't your hope, we would say, hey, we, we would ask you not to come up and take, and not because we want things to be awkward. Uh, it's not awkward at all. We just think, we don't, want, we, want, we don't want to ask you to come and say something that you don't really actually believe. Uh, so we'd encourage you or invite you to stay where you are and reflect on what you've heard. Um, this is also a time uh, where we uh, give, uh, where we uh, give our tithes and our offerings. There's a basket uh, that's in the back uh, where you can do that. Um, and also, we don't really talk about it a whole lot, um, but there's also ways to give uh, online. Uh, we have where you can tithe, you know, online, or you can give uh, in the basket. Um, and then there will be people uh, in the back of the room who, like, if you, you realize, hey, man, I need to really confess some stuff that's going on, and I need to bring some stuff to the light, there will be people in the back that you can go and uh, talk with and uh, who will pray with you, and I uh, will encourage you and speak uh, the truth of the gospel. Uh, so uh, I'm going to uh, pray and close us, and we'll enter into the time of response. There will also be a time uh, where we'll, uh, we have worship. Uh, we'll continue through music, and uh, you can stand and uh, join us uh, in singing, or you can sit and reflect or, or pray. That's up to you. So I'm going to pray if you'll pray with me. Spirit, thank you for your work that you do and that you're doing in us. I thank you for uh, your word and how it cuts to the quick of our hearts. I thank you for your son, Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who uh, gave himself for us to give us wholeness, to cover our brokenness, and to heal us and give us life. I pray that we would be a church of people uh, who are following hard after you, Jesus, and that that would actually shape uh, what's on the inside, or that we'd be shaped on the inside, and those things would be an outworking of uh, the, the inward reality of your work and your transformation. Jesus, thank you again uh, for your word, your presence, your fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.